0: Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections. I am your host, Daniel McDonald. The novel Duplicity begins with a corpse a question. How would you feel if you found yourself dead? Over the next 377 pages, protagonist Stuart Detweiler proves to readers that you would do exactly as he has done. Despite the circumstances, Duplicity's author Peter Selgin says there are a lot worse ways to begin a book than with a dead body on your hands. Throughout Duplicity, Selgin skewers all the trappings of the modern novel and weaves a meta-narrative that surprises readers on every page. Pay close attention, and you may never read a novel the same way again. On this edition of Georgia College Connections, I talk with Selgin about Duplicity, how he set out to write a book that could not be published, and what that journey says about contemporary literature. Support for Georgia College Connections comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. My guest Peter Selgin is a novelist, essayist, playwright, editor, visual artist, and teacher. A brief list of his works includes the novels Life Goes to the Movies and The Water Master, the short story collection Drowning Lessons, a collection of essays entitled Confessions of a Left-Handed Man, an artist Memoir, and the full-length memoir The Inventors. But another stream of his published output focuses on helping other writers master the craft. We last spoke with him about his book Your First Page, first pages, and what they tell us about the pages that follow. His newest novel, Duplicity, is out now from Serving House Books. Peter Selgin, welcome back to Georgia College Connections. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's lovely to be here. We're here today talking about your newest novel, Duplicity. Uh, and I just want to start off um, asking you about its protagonist. In his youth, Duplicity's protagonist promising young creative Stuart Detweiler decides to focus on his literary talent. Who did he become, having chosen that identity?
1: The novel uses a familiar trope of twins. Twins who are, I guess you could say, uh, competitive, antagonistic, complementary, all the things that uh, twins tend to be. But uh, in some ways, Stuart represents the sort of artistic creative poetic ideal he's dedicated and interested in being an artist from very early on in his life and he sets his course and he pursues that course rather relentlessly where his twin takes a more practical uh, journey becoming an academic philosophy professor uh but i would say that uh Stewart's trajectory is more one of artistic ideals, if you like. That's his, his goal in life.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's so interesting that you start off by saying the the familiar trope of twins. Um, in reading it myself, I mean, I have siblings, but did not find that you know idea of twins and an identity that they might um, have separately and together as one that uh, seemed familiar and one that um, shall was shall I say was a well worn path.
1: Well, you know, it may be too that as the writer, as the novelist, we work on these books sometimes for years and we become very very aware in the course of writing a book and thinking about it of what might have been done or has been done in a similar vein and uh, you know you want to you want to know has someone written this book already uh, it's sort of the experience of a songwriter where you come up with a tune and the tune sounds really catchy and good and then you say to yourself wait a minute could it be that I've heard this tune before, that I'm actually doing something that's already been done before. I had that reason, that motive for becoming familiar with books about twins and ended up researching and actually within the book itself, there's a section where the character, the narrator discovers on his father's bookshelves, all these books about twins and even movies about twins And in quite a few of them, there's a sort of idea of twins changing places, the one taking over the other's identity in one way or another. But no, I would say that the way it happens in this novel is original enough, let's say, and different. And of course, too, ultimately, the whole theme of twins could be seen as a metaphor. It's really about the self and about the, the way we can see ourselves in two completely equally opposite ways. Uh, In Stuart's case, I think one of the main tensions or equal opposites is, is he a failure or is he a success? So it's about twins, but it's about twins in the same way that you could say Moby Dick is about whales. I'm not sure that Herman Melville thought of that novel as merely being a big fish story. It's something the whale in Moby Dick operates also, I think, as a metaphor for some bigger things.
0: And I feel as an interviewer, I'm almost walking on eggshells in the sense that this book is a thrilling novel and there are many twists and turns along the way. Uh, Might you talk about this idea of Stuart and his feelings of of success and failure uh, based on his uh, search for who he wants to be and where that search takes him uh, throughout the story duplicity?
1: Well, without giving too much away, Stewart has always wanted to be a great artist, and in particular, a writer. And he has a brother named Gregory, who goes, as I said, on a very different path. But at a certain point, interestingly, Gregory, almost by accident, becomes a best-selling author. Only he does so in secret, without telling anyone, and he changes his name so no one at first realizes that this best-selling author is Stewart's brother. Stewart doesn't know anything about it. So then it becomes a sort of contest where, again, I don't want to give too much of the book away, but the successful twin who's had this huge success and reinvented himself by writing a book about self-reinvention disappears, thanks AWOL, and no one knows where he is. And the brother goes in search of him and finds him only he doesn't find him alive. He finds him dead, at which point he makes a fateful decision not to report his brother dead, but to assume his identity. That's the setup. That's the premise of the book. And then it sort of raises the question, can we really reinvent ourselves? Can we be other than what we are? Are our fates interchangeable? And are we not destined, one way or another, to fulfill a certain fate, no matter what decisions we make? That whole question of how much of our personalities are dictated by nature, programmed into our DNA, and how much are dictated by learning and by our will, our decisions. And I'm not sure that's an answer to your question, but it's... (laughs) (laughs) maybe getting toward one.
0: Why did you think that this exploration of the relationship between twins was the appropriate vehicle to get at some of those questions that you laid out in your last response?
1: So first of all, I have a twin brother. I am a twin. So it's something that I know something about. Obviously, I've been fascinated by it. And I think at the time when I started writing this book, I was sort of dealing with questions of success and failure and and what these things mean. And at a certain point, I stumbled on the idea of what if you take the idea of a soul, of a personality, who on the one hand feels that they are a complete failure, but on the other hand is aware of also the fact that maybe artistically one can be a huge success and commercially one can be a complete failure and vice versa. And I thought, what if this were embodied in a plot where these two equal opposites were two different people and they happened to be twin brothers? And what kind of a dramatic situation could come out of that? And that's basically what I've dramatized in the novel with these two twins representing two sides of the same coin, equal opposites. And then that gets into the whole question of dualities of all different kinds and the sort of different kinds of twins that are implied. For instance, when you read a novel, there's the twinning of the reader and the narrator. You sort of become the narrator in a way. And something similar happens when you write a book. There's the twin relationship between the author of the book and, let's say, the character who's narrating the story of a book. So I wanted to explore all these different kinds of tensions and dualities and equal opposites and things like that. And the twin thing was a perfect vehicle for me to look at that, especially since I happen to have a twin brother and to know something about what that feels like.
0: You're listening to a conversation with Peter Selgin about his novel, Duplicity. Selgin is a novelist, essayist, playwright, editor, visual artist, and creative writing professor at Georgia College. Duplicity is out now from Serving House Books. We'll be back with more of our conversation after this short break. first alerted me to this book when i was talking with you about another novel you had done and you had mentioned that you were in conversation with your twin brother about this can you talk about Mm -hmm. how that relationship may have either inspired or uh, guided this you know through the actual process of writing the book
1: well my brother george is an economist he's very
0: successful
1: and he's a very good writer himself. And what I wrote to my memoir, The Inventors, I, of course, had to write about my brother because it was a big part of the story. And George has never particularly enjoyed being written about by anyone, including his twin. But with that book, it was interesting. What ended up happening was I did share the book with my brother in manuscript, and he had a lot to say about it. And then I I invited him to write the afterword. I actually invited him to have the last word, which he did. He wrote a very, very funny afterword for the inventors in which he, among other things, disagrees with many of the claims that I make in the book or memories that I saw differently than he did. A couple of years later, when I had written duplicity or drafted this novel about twins, I was very reluctant to share it with George or even to tell him about it, because I knew his first reaction would be something like, Oh, not again. You're not writing about twins. You're not writing about me again. But I also thought that he would like the book, uh, knowing my brother's literary tastes. And so I beseeched him to read a draft manuscript and he did. And to my great pleasure and surprise, he read it in a weekend and called me and said that he really enjoyed it. And I think that part of the reason is he realized pretty quickly that, okay, Peter's not really writing about me this time. He's writing about these twins, but it's completely fictional. And it is. It's, it's much less personal. Anyway, that was his reaction to it. But my brother has been a sort of literary mentor and guide to me over the years, and we've... Share our work with each other, and uh, his positive feelings about what I had done were very meaningful to me.
0: Well, I must say, in reading this book, especially with the tip off that you had given me earlier, I broke one of these rules that you talk about in duplicity, and that I, I did have a hard time getting into the mind frame that the author and the narrator were not one in the same. And um, I'm wondering if you might uh, talk about why this was a good genre to kind of explore these issues of identity through this relationship uh, with a twin brother, since that that it was a mystery. I find myself constantly looking and checking and searching online. It is almost as if I was uh, a sleuth on the mystery myself.
1: First of all, I think that this idea that an author and a narrator are, are different people are not the same is, is a crucial uh, precept of fiction writing, especially. In fact, I, I use it as a, a general rule when I teach point of view that the only really solid description of point of view that I've arrived at is that point of view is the difference between the author and the narrator that this person speaking to us in a novel is not the writer, is a created character whom the writer has created. This is just as much of a creation as any other character in the work. And that gives me as an artist freedom to explore, to invent, to go places where I would never personally go. And so Stewart, the narrator of Duplicity, is a sort of exaggerated version of certain aspects of me, I guess you could say, but going in directions that I would never go in. I mean, at a certain point, (laughs) and again, I I don't think it's giving too much away to say this, but he's decided to take his twin's place, and he has to figure out what to do with the body. And he goes to some really gruesome lengths to dispose of this body of his equal opposite in order to become this person. And I don't think I would ever do anything like that. I wouldn't I wouldn't even want to consider the possibility but uh, again as a fiction writer creating this character I have all kinds of freedom and I can explore and go into places that are very dark that are even you know gruesome but they're also sort of fantastic and really stretch the boundaries of possibility what somebody would be willing to do I mean that's one of the things too that you can do in fiction is you put characters in situations where you test them and you find out how far will they go to achieve a certain dream or wish or goal. And in Stewart's case, he goes as far as to try to take over the identity of his brother, who is everything he'd wanted to be a a huge best-selling author with millions of fans just waiting eagerly for him to write his masterpiece.
0: In duplicity, talk so much about the craft of writing. Uh, might you talk a little bit about your decision uh, to make that such a large part of this story?
1: Yeah, I think you're alluding to the, to the sort of metafictional aspect of the book, which is, which is important. Yeah, which I do, I do want to talk about because some well, people have talked about the book and picked up on the fact that even though it's about twins and this macabre plot of twins changing places and someone assuming another person's identity and then discovering what happened to the person whose identity they assumed really the book is as much about all those things as it is a meditation about writing it really is a book about being a writer and about the creative process And I hope very much in writing this book to, in a way, write another creative writing guide to have written a novel that if you read this novel, you learn two things. A, how a novel is written, and B, how a novel should never be written. So in other words, I I set out to do everything to break every rule of novel writing that I possibly could to show what a novel can be and what it can do. And an astute reader read it and got back to me and said something that I thought was very wise, a nice description, they said, you think you're reading a novel until you realize you're reading a deconstruction of a novel. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly right. That's what I've done. That's what I meant to do with this book. And it's called Duplicity for several reasons, but one is this book fools the reader at every moment, on every level. And it keeps pulling the rug out from under the reader and sort of saying to the reader, I am deceiving you, I am deceiving you, I am deceiving you. And at the same time, hopefully, if it works, while every other page is sort of telling the reader, hinting at deception, still somehow makes you believe, still makes the reader keep reading with a certain suspended disbelief. So on the one hand, you believe the story, and on the other hand, you are being told that it's not believable, that it's a construct,
0: that it's in fact a novel.
1: Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted to do.
0: While reading it, I couldn't help but hearken back to our last conversation about the explicitly didactic book, uh, Your First Page. In the narrator, he is uh, many times uh, reaching through the page and grabbing the reader by the lapels and showing him to different parts of the story. And in that sense, I wonder, was there a risk uh, when writing a story that lays bare the tradecraft in the way that Duplicity does?
1: well yeah of course there's a risk and I think that for something to be successful as a work of art to be really successful you have to take risks you have to take risks that may fail I mean a risk isn't a risk unless there's a real chance of it blowing up in your face and I was very aware of doing that but there was something also exhilarating about taking that kind of a risk when I was writing Throughout the process, my marching orders to myself were to write the most impudent novel ever written. I just wanted to throw every caution to the wind, and I wanted to dare the reader to keep reading. And I wanted to say to the reader, in essence, I'm going to mess around with your head, and you're going to like it. You're going to somehow enjoy it and keep reading, and let me mess around with you to the very, very, very end. And that somehow this duplicitousness, this risk-taking, this kind of saying to the reader constantly, you fool, don't believe me, would be entertaining to the reader and make them want to keep reading so that the impudence would be fun, in other words, rather than frustrating or annoying. That's the risk. The risk is that instead of it being entertaining and making the reader want to read, that it just drives the reader to frustration and makes the reader want to throw the book to the other side of the room. Mind you, I'm sure there will be some readers of this book who will want to do that, but but so far the reactions have been very surprisingly positive, and even in some some cases I've been very happy uh, that some people have read this as a sort of straight psychological thriller and hardly even seem to notice that the whole thing is sort of a deconstruction of a novel. They just accept that they were reading a thriller, which is fine with me. I mean, if if that other level doesn't come through, so be it, as long as you had a good ride.
0: And might you talk to me a little bit about um, characteristics of our relationship with literature at this time, that you thought that um, that risk uh, was appropriate and that um, there was a chance that you could put out a a book like this and be successful with the audiences that it would connect with?
1: The easy answer to that question is that what made me feel comfortable doing this, Daniel, was a sense of throwing caution to the wind and sort of saying to myself, you know what, if I sit down and write a novel, it's gonna take a year, two years, three years. People may not like it, they may reject it. In the past, I've had things rejected. What if I write with a devil-may-care attitude? What if I write with the notion that it will never be accepted, that it will be a failure? What if I decide that in advance and act accordingly? So I had already determined that I was writing something unpublishable that could never be a success. No one would ever want it. And that gave me permission to do it my way and do whatever I wanted to do. And that's exactly what I did. I, I did what I wanted to do, but, but once I started doing that, the freedom that I felt started to carry me into places where I actually experienced tremendous artistic joy. And uh, I did a lot of laughing out loud while I was writing this book. I have to say, of all the books I've ever written, I've never had such a good time. Uh, The fact that the author has a good time writing a book doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to translate to the reader having a good time. I mean, you hope so. But I think that in this case, it, it did. And from the responses I've had anyway, it is translating. But the short answer is hopelessness, a sort of hopeless freedom. Like, nothing can go wrong because I've already given up on the idea of commercial success. I'm going to just pull out all the stops and do something that really pleases me artistically. And have fun.
0: Have a lot of fun. It sounds like you see this as a success. Is that the case?
1: Well, I think that if you read the novel, uh, my feelings about this book... Are the same feelings to conclusions to which the main character Stewart comes to about himself in the book, And again, not to give too much away. But the book does deal with equal opposites. It deals with twins, it deals with dualities. And there is this tension in Stewart, and in me also, it's like you can have artistic success, you can have commercial success. They may be one and the same, or they may be opposites. A book can have millions of readers and be a mediocrity. A book can have only a few dozen readers and be a wonderful artistic masterpiece. There's no real fairness in all of this. Sometimes bestsellers are very good, but the fact that something's a bestseller doesn't necessarily mean it's the best. And I quote Fitzgerald toward the end of the book, who said the definition of a genius is the ability to hold two conflicting ideas in the mind at the same time, to acknowledge and be able to accept that on the one hand you could have done something that is a failure on one level, but it's a success on the other level. That's how I feel about this book. I don't expect it ever to have a huge readership but I feel that artistically I achieved my goals. So uh, am I happy with that? Yes. Uh, would I be happier if, to find myself on the top of the New York Times bestseller list? Sure, why not? I take that too. But I think the artistic <laughs> success means more to me than anything. There's another line in the book I like very much that the brother, Gregory, who's changed his name to Brock Jones PhD, that's his author's name, Who's become a huge bestseller and he's in a scene with his twin with Stewart and they're arguing. And at some point Stewart alludes to his tremendous fame. And Brock says to him, he says, being famous is just being misunderstood by that many more people. And I think that that's right. The fact that you have that kind of success doesn't mean that you're better understood. It just means that more people are aware of you and they may not understand you at all. I'd rather have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always happiest when somebody has read a book of mine and they really got it. They understood me. I've been understood. That's, that's really satisfying to be understood.
0: Well, and is it satisfying when in their estimation of what you have done, you learn something else about the work that you did not even know was there until it was commented upon or understood by another? Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. And sometimes someone can enlighten you about your own work. A reader can enlighten you in ways that are positive. They may say, oh, I saw this and that, and I noticed this. And they may notice things in your work that you were not even aware of that are positive, or at least had a positive effect on them. Coincidences or relationships, metaphoric implications that you completely had no idea were there, symbols. But another reader may see some aspects of your work that are maybe not so happy. A critical reader who's read your work very, very closely and who sees certain qualities in it that you also weren't aware of, but that are not so flattering, that say something about the book's philosophy that are troubling. But I think that any time I get critical feedback, a critical response from a reader who's really read my work closely and thoughtfully and brings tremendous intelligence to it, even if what they have to say isn't complimentary, I still enjoy it. I enjoy that someone has taken me seriously. So yeah, I'm happy to be read thoughtfully even if it's by someone who ultimately doesn't love everything I've done.
0: You're listening to a conversation with Peter Selgin about his novel Duplicity. Selgin is a novelist, essayist, playwright, editor, visual artist, and creative writing professor at Georgia College. Duplicity is out now from Serving House Books. We'll be back with more of our conversation after this short break. Well, I don't want to stray too far away from the writing of this book. There are other aspects of it that I do want to explore, but I want to go back um, to that interplay uh, between the narrator and the reader, uh, but also in the sense that, um, you know, the narrator is, is... to his extent just tearing apart this story at at places and um, his comments about the story as it unfolds are are so biting at times and I wonder you know you talked about the freedom that you found Um, of course you know a, a popular song lyric says you know freedom is having nothing left to lose, Uh, but of course uh, many people seek that freedom and um, are never heard from again. I I wonder, in the (laughs) writing of this book, I mean, how long did it take to get the right tone, the right tenor, which the audience could sustain, um, but not stepping off that ledge?
1: It didn't take that long. I sat with the beginning of this book for a long time. I had a, about three pages or five pages, and I had the scene that opens the book with someone coming upon a dead body hanging from a, a ceiling beam, and that dead body is identical to his. Obviously, it's, it's his doppelganger, his twin. And the line that opens the book, which I had from the very beginning just about, which is how would you feel to find yourself dead? Which is a you know, a sort of uh, <laughs> macabre opening line, but, but I had it. But at some point I realized that this narrator was gonna tell his story his way in a sort of unhinged manner. I realized I was dealing with an unhinged narrator And that gave me tremendous freedom, unhinged and prone to ranting. And that voice came to me fairly early on. But there was another aspect of the author-narrator relationship that's important to this book, but I think important to any first-person book. And that's the notion that when a first-person narrator confesses to you, the reader, that narrator is basically making you complicit in whatever it is that they've done or tried to do, whatever crime they've committed, whatever evil thoughts they may have had, whatever less than noble undertakings they've experienced. You as the reader, in a way, become the narrator. You share their experience. You, you walk in their shoes, you breathe their air, you have their thoughts. So a confession is really sort of, in a way, giving the burden of your experience to the person who's listening to it. So I knew that I wanted to write a confession, and I also knew that the nature of a narrative and the relationship between narrator and reader is that one becomes complicit with the other. They merge. They become the same person they're twins in a way but they're identical twins and they become one and the same and i'm always amused when people talk about someone who's done something terrible let's say in the news committed some crime some atrocity and people say how could this person have done this and the notion that you know we say to ourselves i would never have done what this person did well It seems to me that if you lived that person's life and occupied their shoes and had their DNA and their upbringing, it stands to reason that, indeed, you would have done exactly what they did because you would be that person. You can't sort of extrapolate yourself from all those other realities. And that's what a good novel does. It turns you into the protagonist.
0: Well, in a sense, in the book, the narrator says that he does not want you to see eye to eye with him. He wants to convince you that you would have done it exactly as he did. And there was no other way but that way. And you would certainly see that you would have done it that way.
1: And I think that that's exactly right. I think that he makes the point that I was just making He said, look, if you were me, assuming that you were in my position, of course you would do exactly what I did. And the proof of it is that I've done it. And you have to take everything that comes with that proposition, meaning you would have been brought up with me. You would have my thoughts, my feelings, my skin, all my experiences, all my doubts, all my fears, all my motives, all my desires. They would all be the same. And... What you would end up doing with all those things, well, I can answer that question because I've done it. I've had them. So for the the reader to read without feeling and be able to say to themselves, oh, but I would never do what you did if I were you, is absurd. (laughs) If I were you, no, if you were me, you would do what I did because I've done it. So I think Stuart is absolutely right about that. And I I suspect that, uh, you know, philosophers and behaviorists would agree, but I'm not sure.
0: (laughs) Nature and nurture are both. Or neither. Or neither. (laughs) Might you describe why mystery, or even thriller as I think it, is such a good genre, you know, for the issues that you're working out uh, through duplicity?
1: I, I guess I kind of want to say to people who are listening that, that this may sound like a very dark, macabre, gloomy novel. Actually, it's not. It's, it's, I've been told by many readers that it's hysterically funny, and I hope so, because it's meant to be funny. But um, Stuart discovers that a novelist can do worse than have a dead body on the first page. It's just a classic starting point. It raises all kinds of questions. How did the body person get killed? Who did it? Why? If you take that sort of premise and then you complicate it by having the person who discovered the body decide to adopt or steal or inhabit the identity of the dead person and make them, so to speak, live on, well then you complicate things by an order of magnitude and you raise ten times as many questions about why And what's going to happen? So all these things are sort of gifts to the storyteller. I mean, it's a natural, wonderful, not exactly totally original plot devices, but fun to avail oneself of. The things that I ultimately wanted to say with the book could have been conveyed in, I guess, more sober, less dramatic, less thrilling terms. I wanted to talk about the tensions that we all have, the opposite feelings, again, the sort of tension between feeling successful and feeling like a failure. Feeling rich, feeling poor, feeling happy, feeling sad, all these things that are in all of us, that these dualities, I wanted to talk about those kinds of things. And I wanted to talk about writing and the whole artifice of telling a story and what it means and all the feelings and ideas and convictions that I've cultivated about the art of writing over the years. I wanted to talk about all those things, but these two twins and one dead body gave me a sort of fun, thrilling way to talk about it in a way that wouldn't be dry, that would be thrilling, I hoped. So really, it was an opportunistic, fun choice as much as anything else.
0: In that last response, you talked about the use of literary devices. Of course, as we've discussed so far, throughout the book, you are explicitly employing them and imploding them. Uh, Which was your favorite adherence to the rules of writing or trespass against them? And, And might you share it possibly with our audience? Well, I guess one thing that springs instantly
1: to mind is the digression and uh, the whole notion of sticking to and advancing the plot, and the risk of going off on a tangent. This is something that an earlier metafictional novel does, I think, brilliantly. It's *Tristram Shandy, written back in the 18th century, where it's a story of a character named Tristram Shandy, who I think, if I remember correctly, two-thirds of the way through the book hasn't even been born yet, because we've had nothing but digressions. So the whole idea about getting on with the plot uh, is something that I wanted to tease and subvert. So this novel has many scenes and passages and and longers that could be called digressive, uh, that could be sort of like a shaggy dog story. But again, I wanted them to be entertainingly digressive. Another rule that I wanted to flout is the show-don't-tell rule the idea that everything should be drama and scene and action and all this stuff. There's a lot of telling in duplicity, but I think telling can be very entertaining and lively and, and just as um, vivid and kinetic as dramatized scene. So I, I really did try to, again, sort of subvert the rules, but in a way that sort of suggested that any rule can be broken But in order to break the rules, you have to know what they are and and hopefully to have mastered them first.
0: You're listening to a conversation with Peter Selgin about his novel, Duplicity. Selgin is a novelist, essayist, playwright, editor, visual artist, and creative writing professor at Georgia College. Duplicity is out now from Serving House Books. We'll be back with more of our conversation after this short break. At least, seeming from the chronology of your bibliography of course this book is uh, shall we say produced after a, a uh, an amount of time focusing again on another book that was just about the, the craft of writing your first page um, as I've spoken before in the interview I you know commonly harkened back you know to that uh, while reading this um, and you also mentioned and I believe it's mentioned in some of the reviews that you know this book either explicitly was written to teach or should be taught. Now, uh, will you yourself adopt this novel as a text for uh, students of your own?
1: It's tempting. It's very tempting. It depends. I haven't done so to date. I do think you can learn an awful lot about writing, and especially about novels and novel writing, from reading this book. And as you pointed out, there have been several readers, I think three or four coincidentally, who have said, in so many words, this should be required writing in an MFA program. I think it would be more appropriate in a graduate program than undergraduate, partly because of some of the novels more sort of uh, uh, R-rated or PG-13 or whatever passages. It's not necessarily an ideal textbook for a freshman English or a freshman creative writing class. But, yeah, I do think that you could learn a lot uh, from it, and it certainly would be a lot less dry than your average creative writing textbook. And it's, again, you you know, learning by someone doing everything, in a way, wrong to show what is possible.
0: And I asked that question to get at the point that there are a lot of hard realities for aspiring writers in this novel Uh, Do you have just a a sense of how you might set this book up if it were to be a text, perhaps not in your own, but in anyone's writing course? I mean, how would you uh, prepare them for that hard gaze in the mirror that would Hmm. face anyone reading this who says, you know, I want to write the next great novel?
1: I think there would be a lot of good reasons to use this for that purpose, because what it ends up telling the reader the student, is two things. Number one, it says that writing a novel can be a heartbreaking experience and failure and rejection are part of that process. But it comes through, I hope, in the end with one really solid message, which is that even if you don't triumph commercially, even if all your sweat and toil and all the hardship doesn't get you to be a best-selling New York Times author, there is this other triumph, of creating something beautiful that succeeds, and that that triumph is the most significant one. And Stuart, as dark as this novel may seem in ways, ultimately, Stuart acknowledges that he has triumphed. He has done what he set out to do. He has written his masterpiece. And in some ways, duplicity uh, overtly and also um, implicitly is that book. It, it can be done. We can triumph. Is it easy? No. Will we triumph in everyone's eyes? Very possibly not. But uh, this book is, is really lands on the side of, of artistic success being more important than commercial success. So I think if your goal is artistic success, this book will inspire people. I think if their goal is commercial success, purely then maybe this book isn't going to make them that happy. Mm.
0: In that sense, you know, it kind of reads in spite of or as a thorn in the side of the literary establishment or the publishing industry. Might you just indulge me in, in you know, talking about it as a perhaps a, a critique of the publishing industry that we have now? <laughs>
1: uh Well, you know, in that sense, wouldn't it be wonderful if somehow, uh, Duplicity, this book, won some grand literary prize or whatever, and then you sort of can go and say, ah, you see, it won this prize, it got all this attention, and then it rose to the top of the bestseller list, and look, all these commercial publishers, they were wrong, or this and that, but that may never happen, I mean, there's a great likelihood, and Ultimately, the success of the book is going to be determined individually with each person who reads it and who is willing to read it for what it is and say, this is the experience I got out of this book. It moved me. It made me think. It inspired me. The commercial world of publishing is driven by one thing only, really, and that's money. And that is the question of whether someone should invest in publishing a book and they will get a return on that investment financially. That's it. That's what commercial editors are dealing with all the time. And they hedge their bets and all the things that they consider in deciding whether to publish a manuscript or whether to go to bat for a manuscript that they want to see published. A lot of it has to do with external considerations, the demographics of the author, track record, previous sales, all these things that have that, that are not artistic considerations. I think editors are embarrassed to admit that fact. They don't often say it. But it's true. It's a reality. in a more perfect world, every book that gets published would be published for one reason only because people believed in its artistic quality, no matter who wrote it, no matter whether they had uh, so many sales of their last book, whatever, we don't care. This is a well-written book. It's, it's artistically good. Let's put it out there. Well, that doesn't happen very much anymore with the big publishers. And honestly, I think they're making a mistake. And I think that that's one of the reasons why they're suffering because they have, put too much emphasis on externalities. And as a result, they publish a lot of books, let's say from people who may have 10,000 Facebook fans, but the books are not really that good. And then people read them and they say, Oh, this is great literary fiction, according to our big publishers. Well, to hell with it. (laughs) I'm not going to read anymore. Or I'll look someplace else. So you end up killing your audience with that kind of cynicism so yeah I think I think commercial publishing in this country is in serious trouble and has been for a long time and the proof is in the fact that the small publishers are now starting to give them a run for their money as they richly deserve so I don't know I don't want to go too on too much about that because I'll sound terribly cynical
0: but I I must ask you can you explode it out to the larger culture Is that a problem simply confined to uh, publishing, or is this a microcosm of a a greater world in uh, which we are a part of?
1: Obviously, reading has taken a big hit over the, the last few decades, especially our ability to concentrate and sit and read a long book, especially, is greatly diminished from what it would have been a generation ago, and even less of uh, Facebook, uh, social media, computers, all this blogging and posting, all these little little b- bits of, of stuff that we put out. Tweeting, I mean, tweeting has changed the way people's brains work, has changed the way people relate to words and language. I mean, the idea of reading long paragraphs of exposition or even of, of dramatized scene everything has to come in these little tweets and so our brains have been pretty thoroughly rewired over the last two decades in a way that isn't as conducive to the experience of reading as one would hope there are still many people who read but i do think that the only cure for that is for people to embrace books and for them to become a bigger part of our culture than all this other stuff and all the sort of social media distraction is really what it is. And uh, sometimes I think we read books almost just to have something to blog about on Facebook, and that the blogging is more important than the actual books themselves. I don't know. It feels that way. But I don't know. I, I think that there will always be people who are serious readers, and there will always be serious writers. But mainstream, contemporary, literary fiction... Will take the path, is taking the path that's already been taken by poetry before it, where only poets read poetry anymore, pretty much. And I'm afraid what's happening with literature is soon only writers will read fine writing.
0: And in your role as a creator, and maybe even perhaps more importantly as an educator, how are you evolving to meet? That challenge?
1: I don't know that I want to try to change the world or that I can. I don't think so. But as long as there are people who take literature seriously and love books and want to be able to write or write stories or books or whatever, I'm very happy to help them any way I can. I think that the reason to write a book to write a novel or to do any form of art isn't necessarily to have a huge audience, but because there's something in us that needs to be expressed and wants to be expressed. And we can't help it. We can't help but make these things. They need to be taken out of us and given shape and form. And I want to help people do that. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And if the audience, the larger audience for those creations, Keeps shrinking. Well, so be it. I mean, I, I ate in a fast food restaurant the other day, very unhappily. I thought it was one of the worst meals I'd ever had. And we know that fast food vastly outsells finer dining, or whatever. The, the example I like to use with my students when they talk about commercial success is Cheetos outsell cheese. There's a much vaster audience for Cheetos than there is for really good cheese. But I'd rather eat really good cheese. And if I were a cheese maker, I wouldn't want to be making Cheetos. I'd want to be making really good cheese for
0: the people who appreciate it. Yeah, it begs the question. I mean, can you call them makers if uh, Cheetos is the product? I think we might call them alchemists. (laughs) Alchemists (laughs) Something like that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You're listening to a conversation with Peter Selgin about his novel, Duplicity. Selgin is a novelist, essayist, playwright, editor, visual artist, and creative writing professor at Georgia College. Duplicity is out now from Serving House Books. We'll be back with more of our conversation after this short break. And again, perhaps I'm falling prey to it or uh, just exploiting that confusion between that narrator and author. But, you know, in Duplicity's backstory, a cafe patron warns the protagonist, Stuart Detweiler, uh, to give up writing because it's nothing but a lifetime of heartache. I'll ask you, for all the aspiring writers in our radio audience, has it been a lifetime of heartache? That
1: experience that Stewart had is mirrored by one I had myself many decades ago. And, um, yes, it's been a lifetime of heartache. It has, there's been a lot of heartache, but nothing compared to the, I, I I'm just guessing because I haven't taken that other path. I didn't give up. I can only imagine a much emptier life. That would have been mine had I saved myself, spared myself from the heartache of trying to be a writer and doing what I've done. No, I think that in the aggregate, I look it back on my life and what I see, in addition to being aware of the hardships and you know the rejections and all the things that come with choosing this career, I see a very, very rich life. I mean, I have a lot to talk about. I've lived well. It's been exciting. And uh, the books have been created. They're there. They're out there. They're on my shelves. I'm very, very happy to have done what I've done. I'm proud of it. I'm pleased with it. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep writing things. So if somebody said to me, you know, if I had to do it again, would I do it? I would, I would. I think that one is better off not knowing exactly how hard it's going to be. Because I, <laughs> you're just better off not knowing. But, um, and for some people, it isn't that hard. Some people are, are luckier and things happen early and you get success. On the other hand, a lot of people have very early success and then have a very hard time <laughs> dealing with the fact that their best success came when they were so young and they were never able to meet it again. So, no, I I think it's absolutely been worth it for me. I'm very happy to have taken the path that I've taken with my life and to have become a writer and to have
0: done art and uh, wouldn't have it any other way. And so we're out of time in our conversation today, but I don't want to let you leave without asking you, what's next? What's next?
1: Well, I'm writing another novel. I am pretty deep into it. It's a novel that I first wrote quite a few years ago. It's called Hattertown. And it's actually a, a brief mention of it in duplicity. It's a novel set in a dying hat factory town in Connecticut. And the year is 1963. And it's the year that in some ways is sort of symbolically anyway, sort of the, the end of the hat-wearing generations. You know, hats that diminished in popularity, and I think 1963 was the year that sort of killed men's hats, and they stopped wearing them. So it's a novel about change, dramatic change, and it's also a novel about the mysteries and wonder that exist in our immediate surroundings and that we may not be aware of, and how this young protagonist, sort of discovers a sense of the infinite, so to speak, in his own backyard. So that's the novel I'm writing now. Uh, It's called Hattertown, at least at the moment. And I hope to have it finished by the fall and under submission.
0: Well, Peter Selgin, I want to thank you for uh, talking about your current novel, Duplicity, and giving us a taste of what may be to come. And we'll look forward to uh, talking with you more as you continue to write stories that talk to us about life and uh, talk to us about the craft of writing and why we should be reading more.
1: Well, it's my pleasure, Daniel, as always.
0: You've been listening to a conversation with Peter Selgin about his novel, Duplicity. Selgin is a novelist, essayist, playwright, editor, visual artist, and creative writing professor at Georgia College. A brief list of his works includes the novels Life Goes to the Movies and The Watermaster, the short story collection Drowning Lessons, a collection of essays entitled Confessions of a Left-Handed Man, an artist memoir, and the full-length memoir The Inventors. We last spoke with him about his book Your First Page, first pages and what they tell us about the pages that follow them. His 2020 novel Duplicity is out now from Serving House Books. You can learn more about Peter Selgin and his work at peterselgen.com. On behalf of WRGC 88.3 FM, I have been your host, Daniel McDonald.